Welcome to the Art of Living Proactively, episode 238 with Catherine Steele. In this episode, I discuss with Dr. Catherine Steele about her background in psychology and occupational health, her current work in coaching, academic research and writing. She provides an overview of what health coaching is as far as facilitating behaviour change and supporting clients in enacting sustainable habits. She emphasises about empowering individuals to take charge of their health regardless of workplace wellness problems. And she really advocates for a more proactive root cause approach to lifestyle medicine and stresses modelling healthy living for children through education. And overall, she conveys the importance of self-awareness, motivation, community support, and education in making incremental changes for long-term health. Catherine is also part of the Tree of Life, the Cancer Coach Program, and we discuss um, many issues around that as well. So that's this episode with Catherine Steele, episode 238. Hope you enjoy this episode. If you do get some value from this, please do share it with anyone who would uh, really appreciate this. Remember, the episode is also on YouTube. You can watch the actual video of Catherine and I discussing things. Please do leave a review and hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Art of Living Proactively. My guest today is Catherine Steele. How are you, Catherine? I'm good, thanks, Tony. How are you? I'm good. Oh, actually, I, I guess, should I refer to you as Dr. Catherine Steele? Yeah, I mean, that's the official, I suppose. I'm not particularly precious about it, but yeah, I won't make you do it all the way through then. Just... Right, okay. So, and, and Catherine and I know each other from, I did a course with the FMCA, the Functional Medicine Coaching Academy, a couple of years ago. And Catherine was my facilitator, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, was facilitator. So, and that's where we've, and then since then, we've sort of crossed paths a few different times and with the UK Health Coach Association and, and other, other ventures as well. And you've got your, Seems like you've got your hands in many pies. What we've, what you're doing in Leicester University and Cancer Coach and the UK Health Coaches Association and so on. So do you? I was thinking, how do I introduce you? Because you do so many things. So I think it's better you introduce yourself and what all the things you do. I've got friends that describe me a bit like a Jack Russell. You know, I kind of get. I've got sort of lots of enthusiasm for for lots of different things. So my main role is I'm an associate professor of psychology at the University of Leicester and I lead their postgraduate program. So that looks at sort of occupational psychology, general psychology and also at coaching. So that's my main job, which is sort of teaching research and practice there. I've also got a role as behavioral sciences director, academic advisor for the cancer coach. And then, you know, again I do sort of various things. So I'm currently the research lead for the division of coaching psychology. So yeah, lots of lots of little bits and pieces. I run a small business called Turquoise Wellbeing, where I do my own coaching and coaching supervision. So it all falls under the remit, really, of workplace health, coaching, and coaching psychology. So that's the anything to do with those things I'm interested in. Let's start with psychology. So what? When did you? I'm presuming you did a like, degree. Is that how you first got into psych? What What was it that made you want to go into that in the first place? I think you know, a long, long time ago, because it was my it was my first degree. I've always been really interested in people. I have a a really, really curious nature in terms of strengths. You know, curiosity is is a is a strength. I think you know I'm very interested in who people are, how we interact together, what makes the world, what makes us all kind of tick. So that really interests me. And then 
as I was doing my undergraduate degree, I think everyone goes into it wanting to be a clinical psychologist. That's what we all want to do. Or at the time, because it was sort of in the 90s, everyone wanted to be cracker. For anyone that can remember that in, in the UK as a forensic psychologist working in the, in the prison service. But then I was introduced to occupational psychology, which is about psychology applied to work. And that just really interested me because I thought, well, work affects everybody. You know, hopefully we're not all going to meet a forensic psychologist. We won't all meet a clinical psychologist, but we all have something to do with work, even if it's unemployment, volunteering, you know, we have a connection with the workplace. So, and I never really thought of that from a psychological perspective before. So that sparked my interest and sort of followed on from there, really. And so where did you go from there? I mean, obviously, you know, I know all about the stuff with FMCA and UK Health Coach Association and so on, but what, what happened after you did that degree? So I did a master's in occupational psychology and I started working human resources. So I was working in HR fairly quickly, realized that wasn't quite what I thought it was because I thought it was very much about supporting the employees in the workplace. And I think it is much better now, but obviously there's an organizational element to it as well. And that didn't really interest me as much. I was much more interested in the individual aspect. At that point, I was doing work in coaching as well, got introduced to coaching through that work. I then got offered a PhD, which was sponsored by a police service. And that was actually looking at careers. So looking at people's career development, how organizations supported careers. And I think tangentially from that, I got interested in workplace health and workplace well-being. So, you know, when you start to look at how you manage somebody's career, you're inevitably it's a trajectory, isn't it? So you start to look at, you know, why people would want to stay within one organization, why they might not want to stay in an organization. And then I think I was just at a stage in my life where relatives were starting to experience health challenges and it all kind of came, you know, came together. And a lot of those were stress related. So then after the PhD, I worked in a consultancy for a while. And then in about probably about 2010, went back to academia and then um, started a full-time academic post. You mentioned before we started recording about how you and Penny are in the process of writing a book. So do you want to bring us up? Well, let everyone know about yeah, so passion for both of us, I think, is about the workplace. So we're both really passionate about health at work and also knowing that all the stats are showing us that, you know, sickness absences are high, rates of chronic illness in the working age are going up. So, you know, it's a problem for organizations, but it's a problem for individuals as well. So it's affecting kind of both sides of, of that. There's a lot, when you talk about workplace well-being, my experience of that is a lot of people look at stress and burnout. That's the, when you think about work, well-being at work, it's stress and it's burnout or it's mental health. And you have fantastic schemes like mental health first aid. Mind has a great site around kind of workplace well-being. But taking our sort of functional medicine background, you mentioned that, that we sort of met at FMCA, the Functional Medicine Coaching Academy. There's that root cause piece that for me is really missing in workplace health. So much of how we work, if we use our kind of branches in terms of new functional medicine and our pillars of health, is toxic. You know, a lot of people don't have time to eat properly. They don't sleep properly. Rest isn't valued. There's certainly no time for movement. And that got worse, I think, is if people are working from home. You're not even moving between offices, let alone moving how we're designed as humans to move. So we're kind of hoping to present a bit of a different approach, I think, with the book in terms of really looking at root cause health and what individuals can do about it, you know, to try and empower individuals. I think quite often we think, well, we can't do it because our workplace is toxic or our managers are toxic. But really from a coaching perspective, looking at, well, how do we empower individuals to, to take charge of their health, regardless to a certain extent of what the workplace is? 
there are always little steps that, that you can take. But also, you know, the, another part of it will be aimed at sort of managers and senior leaders. You know, how do you create a really healthy workplace? You know, people don't want to recruit talent and have really good talent to have it fall over in, in their 40s and 50s or even earlier, as, as we're seeing now. Because then you're losing people and then the organization's got sickness. Right? So what does a really healthy workplace look like? You know, and it's not bringing in cakes for everyone's birthday. It's not the mild track around outside. It's so much more than that. But I think it's an area that isn't really explored that much. So yeah, they're very really, really early days, but a project we're both really excited about. So in a way, from what you just said, is it a lot of it, well, some of it is about being more proactive? Yeah, absolutely. In terms of, of the podcast, yeah. It's about being proactive, but it's also about knowledge, I think, isn't it? Because I think, you know, we talk about this in health coaching. I think it's insulting to say that people don't know what to do support mm. help it, it's actually putting in the structures and the support and the mechanisms to be able to put it in place it's hard you know it, it's hard to buck the trend it's hard to be the only person drinking water while everybody else is having wine it's hard to you know be the person who's made their own tupperware salad when everyone else is going to the canteen and having fish and chips you know it, it, it's quite difficult to be that person so how do you mm. get that accountability how do you get teams to work together and and how do you really sell the benefits, you know, that you are going to feel so much better if you do this? You're, you know, from a manager, your team are going to perform so much better if you enable this. You have different food in the canteen, if you have different things available. I mean, there's been quite a lot of interesting stuff around this four-day working week in the UK at the minute. And I think that'll be really interesting to see what happens. You know, just giving people another day of leisure time, a bit more autonomy, because that's a big one for health as well as having autonomy. Yeah, I'm really interested to see what comes out of these little experiments around. And so is the book aimed at a particular demographic or who, who is it aimed at? Well, we've kind of said anyone in work, you know, just to try and keep the audience nice and big. <laughs> but I think there will definitely be a focus for managers and HR professionals within it. So looking at people that are responsible for work as occupational health physicians as well. We've said GPs because obviously... You know, GPs are at the front end of this. They see the people that are, you know, really struggling and are rather suffering from those things like stress and burnout. But it's then exploring a little bit more, you know, what's actually causing that? What is it about the way that workplace or that work team is structured that's causing? Mm. And it's often multifaceted, isn't it? Not one thing. And have either you or Penny written a book before? Yes, both of us have. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've written sort of academic text, so textbooks. And also done some chapters in, in editing books. Penny's written most recently a book on leadership in the NHS as well. So yeah, we've both got experience. We both love writing. So, uh, yeah, a bit of a, bit of a passion project, hopefully for us both. So have you got a plan, a date you hope you would get the book out by? Yesterday. I think realistically it's at least 12 months, isn't it? Between sort of editing and I think that's so we're just still negotiating and sort of coming up with the final structure. At the minute, I'm working on things like sample chapters as well. But yeah, I, it, for me, and I know for her as well, it feels like a book that's necessary and a book that's needed and is quite timely. So yeah, it's just fitting it in the day job, isn't it? You know, whilst also keeping ourselves healthy and well with the challenge. <laughs> a few months ago on this, or by the time this episode comes out, it will be a few months. Luke, Luke Watts from The Cancer Coach was, was a guest on this podcast. And obviously you're involved with The Cancer Coach as well. So only fun. For anyone who didn't catch the episode, could you briefly explain what is the cancer coach and what is your role in there? Yeah, I mean, so I'm involved with the Tree of Life, which is sort of part of the of the cancer coach sort of organisations. They, 
the Tree of Life is an online program designed at preventative healthcare. So we're following the sort of four, you know, the main pillars of, of health. And, and it's about, you know, again, being proactive and looking at what you can do to support your health. So my role with the organization is, is I'm the behavioral sciences director and academic advisor. So we're going to be looking at things like engagement, also working with a team of health coaches as well to look at how we actually end that change. So we can give people the knowledge and design programs that gives people the knowledge, but that holy grail piece is, is the how. You know, how do you use behavioral science to actually change, to facilitate change and also sustainable change? So trying to bring some of my knowledge from sort of psychology background and from behavioral science background into the programs that they offer. And also the evidence-based piece as well. You know, we always want to be really careful with what we're doing in this area because it's, you know, it is open to critique. That's the nature of it. So the more firmly attached to the evidence base we can be and really understanding what good evidence looks like, I think that's really important within this sort of commercial health space to have that. Have that. So the tree of life, when is, there's a, as you said, there's like an education aspect. It's, I mean, it, it could be it could be really helpful to so many people if we if if the word if the marketing works out well and it gets gets out to many people it could be it could help a lot of people start to become more proactive in in a way I guess absolutely I mean the potential for for programs like the Tree of Life I think are are huge and I'm I was actually in a meeting with somebody else around coaching this morning and I think the there is it's so so timely. There is such a need at the minute. People are struggling. People have been struggling, I think, for a long time. People are aware, you know, chronic illness. I mean, I'm in my early 40s and I'm already seeing a lot of my friends, you know, polypharmacy, struggling. And, you know, we've got young kids. You know, we don't want to be feeling like at this stage of our life. You know, that's how you might want to, don't really want to feel like it in your 60s and 70s either, but you certainly don't want to be feeling like it in your late 30s and 40s. That's, mm-hmm. that's not okay. And I think that's really concerning when we look at this. I mean, I think the cancer diagnosis at the minute in working age adults is really high. And, mm-hmm. and and again, we're seeing younger and younger diagnosis of things like autoimmune disease, fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue. And we do really need to look at what's the cause. How are we living? How are we contributing to, to this? And that's not a, it's a really difficult conversation to have, isn't it? Because I think it can very easily stray into blame. And people always taking then too much personal responsibility for it because it's not about that. It's okay. about this is the environment that we're in. There are all kinds of reasons that we could talk about as to why we're in the environment that we're in. And I'm far beyond you know, my, my expertise. But it's okay. So how do we recognize that? And then just take those little steps one by one to, to make it different. And also the be like osmosis, isn't it? How do we kind of filter it to, to other people? So, you know, you see somebody over there looking really shiny and well, what are they doing? And how can I get some of that? You know, that's how I like to see it sort of happening as part of communities, really. Are you aware of any countries that are doing this well, that are, do have a sort of a better approach, say, than the UK and the US anyway? I mean, I'm sure you all know, Tony, about the Blue Zone. Reading Dr. Mark Hyman's book, actually, The Forever Young, at the minute, and he, he talks about the silent age spent in places like Sicily. And there's definitely other, other countries that do it better or do it differently. And that are just more, I think even in the UK, there are probably different areas that are doing different and, and doing it better. So I live in quite a rural area, for example, and I know that it's much easier for me here to get out and go for a really long walk. It's kind of hilly outside. I'm getting, you know, 
or the fractals from nature and, and really getting a different experience to when I've lived more in a city centre and it's quite a different experience. I can still get out and go for a walk, but it might be by a main road. It's just, it's just different. But on the other hand, here from a community perspective, it's probably more isolated than when I was living, you know, somewhere where there were literally people on the doorstep, there were coffee shops on the doorstep. So it's, it's all about balance, isn't it? And finding what works for you, I think, and, and knowing yourself well enough to know what works for you. Let's talk about the coaching that you do. What was it that attracted you to coaching? God, it was such a long time ago. That's a really interesting question. I don't remember when I asked that. I think it's my curiosity again. I've got a very solution-focused nature, which is both a blessing and a curse, I think. Really interested in sort of looking at what the problem is and looking at what the potential solutions are. And I think coaching, you know, appealed to that side, you know, very much goal-driven, goal-directed, looking at, you know, exploring solutions. It's facilitative as well. So I think I was in a teaching role at the time and I think there's a lot of coaching in, in teaching, particularly in, in higher education. So thinking about, you know, how do we get people to transfer their learning? How do we get people to change? I think, you know, when I was in consultancy, I was also working a lot in things like assessment centres and talent development centres. And, you know, again, there was a lot of coaching in that, you know, how do you get people to be the best they can be? And I guess gradually that's just been translated into, okay, so how do we get people to feel the best that they can? You know, so from a, organizational perspective in terms of talent and coaching people to to really perform well so well actually there are other things underneath this as well it's not just about behaviors and competencies it's actually about lifestyle choices i think a lot of people don't really understand what what health coach is could, could you explain what what is a health coach can try i mean it's so many things, isn't it? I mean, a health coach, they're not an expert. They're not an expert in you. They're not an expert in your condition. So you might have a diagnosis. You know, they're not there to be the clinician that knows everything about your condition. But they are there to help you facilitate change. So to me, a health coach is somebody who has a knowledge of health and an understanding of um, what it takes to be healthy. Um, but then they are also an, but they are an expert in behavior change. To me, health coach is a behavior change expert. That's where they're, that's, that's this golden piece that they have is they know how to facilitate behavior change. They know how to support you with behavior change. They're not doing it for you. I think really skilled health coaches are also good at that challenge piece because change isn't easy. We know change isn't easy. You know, if it was, we'd all be doing, it. you know, if it was really easy, we'd just be doing, it. and it's not. And we'd be doing it consistently, not like this, which is how for most of us, you know, change, change happens. So I think there's a big thing about the way health coaches challenge us gently and in the right direction. But yeah, I think health coaching is about being a behavior change expert and knowledge of health. Is there anything that you would say, any myths about behavior change, things people think about behavior change that aren't really true? Four things people think about behavior change that aren't really true. Then it's all about discipline. All about discipline. If we were just more disciplined and we were better people, then we'd be we'd be better people. And I think it's quite a, a negative way of looking at it. It's sort of like the New Year's Eve effect, isn't it? And I know we've spoken about this before, I'm sure, at FMCA. You know, 31st of December, well, from tomorrow, I'm going to be a completely different person. I mean, it's just not realistic, is it? And if I don't, that failed. You know, I think we can be really hard on ourselves when it comes to, to behavior change. And, and as soon as we feel or a taste that we failed and we just get so I think that's a, a big it's not just about discipline it's about really understanding your motivation it's about really understanding why you want to do something you know there are very sort of 
experts and the names escape me now, the guy that does a lot of work around reverse engineering. So basically, you know, how do you want to feel when you're 90? Therefore, right. what do you need to do today? And I think that's really important. And it isn't just about what well, I need to get on with it and be better. It's about what I need to really think about how do I want to feel at that age and, and what do I want my life to look like at all? If I want that, then I probably need to go to that yoga class today. And that's probably the most important thing on my to do list. Or I will skip that cake or I'll save the bottle of wine till Friday rather than tonight. You know, it, it's just those little things, isn't it? That if we think mm. about much further ahead and that actually needs to impact our day to day. And, and that isn't just about self-discipline or failing or not being good enough. It's so much deeper than that. One thing about behavior changes that I sometimes think about is we, many people are not, not as kind to themselves as they could be. Now, we all probably need to be a lot kinder to ourselves than, than we are. And, and in an aspect of that is we also need to be kind to our future selves. And so how, you know, if our future selves in 20 years time, there's certain things that if, that if we do do now, certain habits, behaviors is going to be much kinder to our, our future self in 20 years time. It's trying to put that across sometimes to people and get them to under, sort of understand that. Yeah, definitely. And it, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a health coach. I try and, you know, I think we all do our best, don't we? And we do the best we can, but it's, it's, it, it, I mean, there is an element, I suppose, of committing to practices, isn't there? So I journal quite a lot and I will very often journal about my future and, 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 and that kind of, and if I do it first thing in the morning, that tends to help me keep on. But that's just for me. That's why I think this, this self-awareness is important, you know, you know, and again, what we want in the future is very individual, isn't it? Very, you know, unique to us. And it's a conversation we don't really have. We don't even really have it necessarily with our partners or with our children or parents, you know, it, it's quite an intimate conversation to have, isn't it? You know, what we want our future to look like and, and what we yeah. really, really want that to look like, feel like. And it's probably an, an important conversation to, to encourage people to, to have it. Yeah. There's, there's a guy called Peter Ute. I don't know if you're, if you've come That's across That's the one him. I was thinking of. Yes. With the reverse right. engineering. <laughs> and I love his, he, he often talks about the centenarian Olympics or I think he calls it the centenarian decathlon. And it's, yeah, it's a, a concept that I often think about. And so I, he talks about, well, if you want to be competing in the centenarian Olympics, you need to be at a certain level of fitness and strength and flexibility and so on at the age of 100 to be able to take part in that contest. So therefore, to be at that level at 100, you need to be at this level at 90, at this level at 80, and this level at 70, and so on. It's a great concept. Even if we all thought like that, we'd probably live very differently. Mm -hmm. you know, if we all really thought about, you know, fundamental, and they say, don't they, you know, a lot of people come to lifestyle medicine, functional medicine, through some kind of trauma, and, and that's the bit that I wish, you know, I, I could do differently in, in the work that I do. I wish I could reach people before that happened, before that diagnosis, before that trauma, before that loss. And, and I haven't figured that one out yet. And, and if, I, if you find anyone that does, please, please point me in their direction because wouldn't it be great? I mean, I mean we talked you know, before we started recording, you know, families and children is a, is a big one for me. You know, my daughter's 10 and, you know, we try and model a certain way of living, but I do think it's really hard because there was a program recently talking about you know, children are actually eating more ultra processed foods than adults in the UK percentages. And that's terrifying when you throw in hormones and everything else. And 
But again, it's that environment, isn't it? And that modeling. So, you know, let's hope that we can try with the younger generation to get to this stuff, you know, before they're in their 40s or before they've had a diagnosis or before you know, something happened to them that causes this sort of about turn that we see so often in, in clients. I mean, that would be amazing. That's why, like Nirvana, that would be great. <laughs> There's a guy called Sean Stevenson, and for a few years he's been saying that he thinks that in, I forget what timeline it was, 10, 20, 30 years' time, we'll look back upon this period and think, how could people be so barbaric in, in feeding children, like all this junk food that, that they're given? And and for many years, he was the only person I ever heard saying that. But recently, I've heard other people saying sort of similar thing. It does seem to be a bit of a movement. I mean, obviously, Jamie Oliver's been talking about school dinners and, and things for a, for a long time. It's just the norm, though. It's the norm. And, and in some ways, you know, when I send my daughter off with her pat lunch, and I know she's probably looking at her friend's pat lunch and thinking, mine's quite different. You know, that feels cruel because it's just, you know, I'm not feeding her the same food as a lot of her friends. And that's just personal choice. It's just what we, what we choose to do. But I know she finds that hard. And, mm. you know, and there must be times that, that that's difficult. And I mean, that's the whole, you know, we, again, we've talked about Pilar Gerasimo and the healthy deviant approach, you know. But it's the whole marketing around children's food. It's huge, isn't it? You know, when you go into a supermarket, the sort of section on pat lunches is your dairy dunkers, it's, it's crisps, it's bars. But there are some people out there, I think, more and more that are doing a lot around home cooked children's snacks and foods. But again, it's that lifestyle piece, isn't it? If we're all working and, you know, and, you know, it, it isn't just time. It's more than time. It's habit as well, isn't it? And it's the habit of, you know, we made a sourdough starter a couple of years ago and I'd wanted to do it for years. And I, you know, I wish I'd done it years ago because it was so easy. And now, you know, we can bake bread, we can make pizza bases and it's really, and it genuinely is really easy. If anyone ever is thinking about doing it, it's so easy. And I wish I'd done it years ago. But things like that, it's just lost knowledge, isn't it? And, and, you know, our sort of generations before us, that knowledge has been lost and hopefully we can get some of that back and, and pass that on quickly <laughs> to the, to the future generation. It's when you were saying that, I don't know where, it just reminded me of, I can't remember which country it is. I think it's Peru or Chile where a couple of years ago they banned all advertising for sort of fast food, processed food to children on TV, any media. And I've been meaning to, it's just reminding me actually that I need to go and check what was, what has happened since then and, you know, what has, has their health started improving? Have you, have you heard about that? I don't know, but I'd love to, yeah, I'd love to know more about, I mean, there must be pockets of society where people live differently and, and do things differently. And I think we're all just trying to do the best, aren't we? We're all trying to do the best when it comes to our, you know, I fundamentally believe that we are all trying to do our best when it comes to our own health and certainly to our kids' health. No one's trying to, to not do that. I just think the environment makes it really difficult. And that's why I say it's not about discipline. It's not, you know, not about those sort of things. It, it, it's a much bigger conversation than that, isn't it? Around, you know, how we live and, and what we're doing. And, and I think that's why going right, going full circle back to, to the workplace. That's part of our environment, isn't it? For most of us, you know, work forms some part of our environment. And if that isn't a healthy place to be and there aren't really, you know, ground roots, healthy practices there, then it's really difficult to put them in everywhere else. You know, if you're working crazy hours, if your expectations of your organization, you know, just at the minute with the cost of living crisis as well, just to get enough money to live and actually asking people to do a load of other things is really difficult. So it's all of these things need, need to be sort of considered together, don't they? You talked about 
families and children is a is a big area for you. What what changes would you like to see in in that? Uh, there are some really big ones, which are, but I, I think I think acknowledge. I think it's nice. I think that's starting to come. So I think a lot of people were quite shocked. I think was it a panorama program? It was about ultra processed foods, and, and I've seen some of the sort of conversations around that. And I think people were quite surprised. You know, I know Tim Spector's done some things. You know, what is ultra processed food? How do we recognise? Because certainly, you know, some children's snacks that we think are healthy, you know, he's, I've seen him identify on his social media. That's that bit is ultra processed. You know, if it's got a number of ingredients that you don't recognize, then that is a, an ultra processed food. Even, you know, mm-hmm. as healthy as it looks, it might be a fruit bar or, or something. It, it's still full of different things that, that aren't great. So I think there's a big education piece there. I mean, I'd love to see it on curriculums for schools. When I used to do, sorry, my age, but, you know, we did cooking at school <laughs> when we cooked. And, you know, I, I just don't think that happens very much anymore in terms of children learning about nutrition and learning about, I mean, they learn about some aspects of nutrition, but really learning about health. Because once you've got that knowledge, I heard it described, it was actually Dorian Yates, the bodybuilder on a podcast ages ago, and he described this as the crack in the dam. Actually, once you've got this knowledge, you can't go back. It, you know, the, right. the water just keeps coming and you can't go back. So once you understand and you really understand more about health and I'm 20 years on, still learning all the time about different things that we can do, different practices, things that I might have done originally. I'm like, oh, maybe that, maybe that wasn't the best change. Maybe I need to look at something else. So it's an ongoing, lifelong process, I think. But I do think that once you start looking at it, you can't sort of put the blinkers on and go backwards, you know, and then you mm-hmm. have to make changes from, from that point. So I guess education is, is a big one, isn't it, for, for kids? On about education, what, I listen to quite a few podcasts around sort of AI and AI in health and AI in education. And I've heard a few discussions recently with various people sort of quite high in education in the UK, in Europe, in, in America and so on. And I think the common theme that it seems to be from all of these sort of different conversations is with AI and tools like ChatGPT and all the other sort of similar tools, education is going to have to change quite drastically in the next couple of years. I think it's fascinating what those changes may be. I mean, in my sort of main role in university, it's something that's being being talked about a lot in terms of, you know, it's not just about, I think initially we've been talking about, you know, how do we assess people? How do we make assessments in education? But much bigger than that is, well, what even is education now? You know, the knowledge is, is out there. What does education look like? What are we teaching people to do? And maybe it is going to be about teaching people to look after themselves and to, to care for themselves and to be kind to themselves and kind to other people. Because isn't that the bit that's innately human? You know, I wonder, I wonder whether that is the bit that is actually human. And a lot of this other stuff can be generated in, in different ways. And maybe there's something about connection as human beings, that connection to ourselves, that connection to other people and valuing them. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe maybe that's the, the education of the future wouldn't be great. It'd be amazing. Are you still involved in the UK Health Coach Association? Yeah, I'm, t- I'm still a member of the UK National Health Coaches Association. I mean, they just do, do so much, don't they? They do all their CPD, all of their events and things. So 
Yeah, they've done some stuff recently. I think at the IPM conference, I wasn't able to go, unfortunately, for some other commitments. But yeah, I mean, they're really championing, I think, the role of, of health coaches in the UK, which is, which is great. You know, they're, they're the only organization I know of that's specifically focused on, on health coaching. But yeah, that, they're a- so, so is, is the number of health coaches in, increasing quite a bit in the UK? Again, I think so. I don't know for certain, but I think they are. I mean, so the number of people training, the number of training programs in health coaching seems to be increasing. The NHS obviously, and they sort of just published their future workforce plans, and health coaching is part of that. So to be increasing the number of health coaches working within the in the UK over the next sort of ten to fifteen years, and I think the NHS just recognising health coaching is important as well. So certainly in areas like diabetes, they're they're being used a lot more. But there's so much potential uh, for health coaches, and I did hear Nick's podcast that you did with with him, and you know very much talking about you know we have business coaches, we have mentors, we have life coaches, we have executive coaches and hopefully you know, health coaches is the new tranche of those kind of things because it is a different skill. You know, the coaching is, is sort of fundamental, isn't it, in terms of the, the coaching models that we might use or the, or the type of conversation. But that health focus, I think, is, is quite unique when it comes to health coaching and that real understanding of, sort of what mental, physical and spiritual well-being actually looks like and, and what it takes. To, to get there is is you know different to other other types of coaching. We're we're flying through as far as time is concerned, Catherine. What is there is there a book that comes to mind that has really moved you for any reason? It doesn't have to be recent. It could be at any time in your life, but something that sort of stays in your memory that's moved you. There are probably two or three because I did I did have to think about this actually. There was a gentleman called he passed away now unfortunately called David Servan Schreiber. I don't know if you've come across his work. And he wrote a book called The Anti-Cancer Lifestyle. And I think I came across that probably in the early 2000s. And then his second book was called Healing Without Freud or Prozac. They're very much about natural approaches to health. And The Anti-Cancer Lifestyle struck me at a time when some family members had cancer diagnosis and it was really like, okay, I need to look at it and really understand it. And then obviously the book on mental health, just because I was working in psychology at the time. So they were the first Hesitantly, I'd ever seen really around so I like the word alternative, but you know, lifestyle medicine approaches, approaches to health. And then the other that was a big game changer for me was Kelly Brogan's first book, A Mind of Her Own. Again, you know, really focusing on mental health and really understanding that there are different approaches to mental health. And I mean, again, that's just sort of my, my psychology background, I think, as to why I was attracted to, to those. Because that had just never been thought of. You know, if you were depressed, you had Prozac. Um, if you were anxious, you had Rethel. You know, that was sort of very much what, what the model was. So to suddenly see that, oh, it might be about what you're eating. It might be about how you're living. It might be a perfectly normal response to the environment you're in. And therefore it's the environment that, that needs to change. They were real game changers. And like I say, they were the cracks in the dam, I guess, for me. If, is there any, any questions about what you do and your thoughts around coaching and psychology and so on that I haven't asked that you? Be useful for the listeners to know. I can't. Uh, no, I don't think so. I think we've had a really rounded. Uh, round- no, I don't think so. I think we've had a really rounded, rounded conversation. I mean, I think the coaching market is a little bit confusing, and I hope that will change. Not really a question as such, but you know, I think, I think for the end user, what we do can be tricky to to access it. And, and I think it would be good for people to be able to navigate a bit more clearly. And I guess that's that's role 
foot footed people like the UKI, HGA, the UK International Health Coaches Association is really to market health coaching to the end user, which very much I think it is what they're about. So people can understand, you know, why they might need a health coach, why they might want one, <laughs> why they might need one. And then if, once they've identified that they need one and committed to that, how do they find a good, you know, what are they looking for? Because, you know, coaching's a big marketplace. There's a lot of people offering coaching out there. And, and we need the research certainly suggests that, you know, part of the effectiveness is coaching is about the relationship between the coach and the coachee. So, yeah, I think it's also about, you know, doing a few sessions, with, you know, because most coaches will offer a trial session. So, you know, do a co- have a few conversations with coaches and see where you feel the best fit. And don't be worried if you, the first one doesn't mean, you know, don't mean, you don't think you're going to offend anybody. You know, it's much better to find someone that you kind of have a connection with because then you'll have much help. Absolutely. So if people want to find out more, more about you and what you do, where would they go? So the official bio would be on the University of Leicester web pages under the sort of School of Psychology and Vision Sciences. I'm probably most active on LinkedIn or Instagram. So I'm just under Dr. Catherine Steele on, on those. You're probably most active on Instagram, then LinkedIn, then Twitter. So yeah, any of those find me. And is there a quotation you particularly like? Victor Frankl, I'm going to say it wrong now, I'm sorry. <laughs> Victor Frankl, between stimulus and response, you know, between stimulus and response, there's a space. And it's actually on the bottom of my email, so there's no reason for me to get it wrong. So between stimulus and response, there's a space, and in that space lies our growth and freedom. So, you know, really, to me, that's about choice and having choice and having agency. And obviously, people that don't know Victor Frankl was a, a concentration camp survivor and a psychiatrist and created something called Logos Therapy. The book, Man's Search for Meaning, I've read probably three or four times in the last few years trying to just make sense of everything that's been going on it's quite a small paperback and it's fantastic but yeah that that idea of choice you know between there's a stimulus and there's a response but there is a gap in between and we all are making thousands and thousands of choices every day and it's that gap where we really need to vote in terms of what we do how we respond that's coincidentally my my favorite quotation as well it's something I, th- I think I first came across it I don't know, seven or eight years ago. And, and since then, it's, I think almost, I wouldn't say every day, but I regularly think about it. And I try and I've, I certainly have succeeded in changing what was always my default response when to the stimulus. And I no longer in, I wouldn't say in every situation, but in many situations, I don't have that default response necessarily. And I've changed uh, the default in many cases. It's having it on the wall somewhere, isn't it? It's like a constant reminder. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah, I've got a sort of board with it on. I think I think it's powerful. I think there's power in those words. Yeah, absolutely. And it, I mean, I'll put. The, well, it's funny. I was going to say I'll put the actual wording in the show notes. I don't know if you're aware. There's there's a a website called Quote Investigator, and they the words that are commonly attributed to that quote were never actually said in Man's Search for Meaning. He said something around that. The wording that you normally find on Google and whatever, he never said it in in that word in that order. You know, I'm gonna to have to read it again now. I'll send you a link from Quote Investigator because it's a fascinating article. He goes into real Quote Investigator. What they tend to do is they examine well-known quotes like from Einstein and many other people. And well, did he really say what everyone thinks he said? And and then they he goes really deep into all these other sort of books and places and to trying to find out where, what was the origin of these words? And it often, it wasn't Einstein. It wasn't. Oh, if you send it, I have to change my email, Tony. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd be really interested to see that. Yeah. 
So, and I'll, I'll put the, a link to the particular article in the show notes. Brilliant. But Peter Frankel did say something around that. He just didn't say it in the actual way that it's commonly attributed to him. Well, perhaps we can claim it then, right? <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Well, Catherine, it's been an absolute pleasure. So thank you very much. Best of luck with all the tons of things that you're doing. Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed the conversation, Tony, as always. Thank you. Next week is episode 239 with Stephen Borden. And Stephen explains how blood flow restriction or BFR training works and its benefits. He outlines how BFR uses inflatable cuffs to restrict blood flow, which allows people to gain muscle and endurance at lower training intensities. He talks about how BFR can aid in rehabilitation in traveling athletes and also in cognition through lactate exposure and a lot more around those areas. He emphasizes about using it proactively when unable to train at higher intensities. And he advises starting with lighter loads and going close to failure for muscle growth. And overall, he conveys that BFR blood flow restriction training allows you to maintain momentum despite circumstances that may limit training, such as injury or older age and so on. So that's next week, Stephen Borden, episode 239. If you enjoyed this week's episode with Catherine Still, please do share with anyone who may get some value from it. It would be fantastic if you could leave a review for us on one of the podcast platforms and hope you have an amazing week. 